Good morning, gents. Welcome to Burning Man. Do come and um, grab your seats. If we fill up from the front, that would be um, super helpful. I'm sure we'll be joined by a few latecomers making their way here now. Fantastic to see you here uh, this morning at uh, Burning Man. Um, if you haven't met me, my name's Pat. I'm involved in helping lead Burning Man here at St. Mike's. And um, we're in a series in 2 Timothy this term. And just to remind you, uh, I'll try and say it again at the end, but um, we have two sessions left after this. Uh, but the one that might throw you is we have a session next week because St. Michael's is out of action uh, the week after that. So we thought we'd squeeze another one in, a bonus track in next week uh, instead of the week after with Paul Perkin. Um, and then we're back in business um, on the 20... It's, either the, it's back on normal timing, about the 23rd, 4th, 5th of July, whatever the Thursday is that's, uh, that week. So two more sessions after this one. But thrilled this morning that we can have... Um, Charles Marnham uh, speaking to us from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Charles is the vicar here. So um, I thought it'd be fun just to ask Charles a couple of questions about um, his ministry thus far and uh, his views on one or two things. So Charles, um, would you like to tell us, how long have you been a vicar here at I've St. Michael's? I've been at St. Michael's for 20 years. Uh, I've been vicar of about three or four churches because as you, as you imagine in central London, the churn is uh, quite, quite high of people coming and going. Wow. And how long have you been ordained? Into, where were you before? I, well, I, I, my first curacy was at Hedge Trinity Brompton, and um, I've been ordained for 38 years. Well, this? And uh, then we went to the northeast of England. I decided after the rarefied atmosphere in Knightsbridge, I need to go somewhere different. So I went to Middlesbrough, which is very different, um, up in the northeast, and then 11 years in Darlington, again different, uh, in a very much a mission situation. And I used to say it wasn't that they didn't know the answers, they didn't know the questions either. Wow, um, amazing. And um, you're passionate about um, men's ministry and yeah. a big fan, and we're hugely grateful for your yeah, support uh, for Burning Man, Charles. Can you share a little bit of your heart of the importance that you see of um, yes. I mean, at the centre of it, of course, is men are underrepresented in the church, underrepresented as Christians, and uh, certainly, actually, particularly in the North, which has a very sort of um, different sort of culture, um, men are very reluctant to come to church. Uh, if you knock on the door, they'll say, oh, you need to see the wife. <laughs> and, uh, so I've discovered that the only way to give men confidence is actually to, to have groups and times for men only, um, because they don't have opportunities in the same way often. And actually, that still carries on. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm supportive of this. I still believe that's true, that men need opportunities to give each other confidence uh, to be able to reflect together uh, from our perspective um, and to encourage one another as well. Mm. Uh, I think men are discouraged if they come in. I remember a man saying to me that this was the first church he'd come to where he felt comfortable. Um, he'd been brought up where his mother took the children to church whilst his father went and played golf. And, uh, you know, there is that huge divide often, in, in, mm. and it goes way back right from the beginning of a culture. Church culture seems not to be men-friendly. Mm. Well, Charles, we're hugely grateful for you, um, your hospitality and your support hosting Burning Man here week in, week out. So many thanks for having us. And again this morning, could I pray for you? Yes, and please. Then, um, oh, please. We can crack on. Let's pray for Charles. Father, thank you so much uh, for Charles, for his life, for his ministry. Lord, we thank you for um, using him down the years to help establish your kingdom 
the many different areas that he has ministered in. We thank you for his time here at St. Michael's these past 20 years, for using him, and especially for using him to impact men's lives with the gospel. And we pray that um, you would use him again this morning, that your Holy Spirit would uh, take his words and um, sow them in our hearts, challenge each of us, bring us revelation from your word, Lord. And would your blessing be on him now and for the rest of his days. We pray that, we, we dare to pray that his most fruitful days in ministry would, would be ahead of him still. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you'd grab a Bible, uh, page 1196. My heart slightly failed because I misput it on the top of my... I put 1 Timothy, but actually it is 2 Timothy. Uh, it's 2 Timothy 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Reverend James Irvin was vicar of St. Mary's Lee in Lancashire for some 35 years, until 1874. And what was unusual about him was that he had fought at Waterloo in one of the Scots regiments, most probably as an ordinary soldier. And he expected military-like discipline both from himself and his fellow clergy. And in a published sermon, he wrote this, I cannot see much of that spirit which in other times has made other men confessors and martyrs. I see a great disposition to accommodate themselves to the circumstances of the times. Note that. To accommodate themselves to the circumstances of the times and exercise their ministry with as little trouble as possible to themselves and as little offense as may be to their ungodly 
all worldly-minded parishioners. Well, three chairs for the Reverend James Irvin. Uh, the title for this morning's Burning Man talk is Persecution Guaranteed. <clears throat> but of course, there will be no persecution if a Christian accommodates himself to the circumstances of the times, and if we live our lives determined to cause as little offense to the ungodly or worldly-minded. For we will, in short, be like salt, which has lost its taste. But Paul, writing to Timothy from prison in Rome, a young, naturally inverted, introverted uh, man, probably not very physically robust, was keen to stiffen him so that he would be able to take up the reins of leadership from Paul. And the need was particularly urgent, as Paul knew he was facing almost certain death, and he wanted to ensure the continuity of the spread of the gospel. And Paul was seeking to prepare Timothy for his new responsibilities. And Paul prepares Timothy by telling him as it really is. And it's my first point. Wake up and smell the coffee. Seems appropriate this morning at Burning Man. Wake up and smell the coffee. And that graphic American expression is a call to be alert to the things that are going on around us. Paul expresses that rather differently, of course. Look at verse 1. But mark this. The RSV Bible, understand this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Paul means that we are to expect great difficulties in the times between Jesus' first coming and the time when he will return at the end of the age. Paul and Timothy were therefore living in the last days. And so are we. These terrible times or times of stress in the RSV, or perilous times in the authorized version of the Bible, will continue until Jesus returns. The church will experience times that are hard to bear, times which are menacing, even dangerous, seasons when the church must expect painful moments which are hard to cope with. And who, looking round our world today, would deny that that is being exactly fulfilled as ancient churches are destroyed and Christians killed and being driven out. The opposition to the truth will be strong and fierce and timid, inexperienced Timothy needs to understand this. Wake up and smell the coffee. And the opposition is not something that will go away if he keeps his head down. It's inherent in the culture of his day. Indeed, it's inherent in any culture that refuses to recognize God's authority, as we're seeing in our own culture today. Again, Timothy needs to understand and mark this so he is fully prepared, and so must we. And God speaks to you and me this morning. Don't be surprised. Don't, therefore, be unprepared for the increasing hostility in our culture to the Christian faith and to churches which refuse to accommodate themselves to the circumstances of the times. And as Pat has brought it up, I can't help but reflecting in my 38 years of ordained ministry how the times have changed, how what is traditional orthodox Christianity is now seen to be unacceptable, intolerant, and all the rest the underpinning of our very culture, which is Judeo-Christian. Interestingly, uh, we were reflecting yesterday at a minister's conference 
that the whole area of human rights comes from the Christian belief that every person is made in the image of God and matters. And yet we think it's a new invention. Extraordinary. My second point is this. Paul encourages Timothy to analyze the situation. Look at verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Well, that's quite a list for first thing in the morning, isn't it? But let's have a look at it. A refusal to accept God's truth will be seen in people's behavior. They are lovers of money. They are lovers of pleasure. And by that, I mean that these become the things they worship. And these are their counterfeit gods that Tim Keller so powerfully writes about. And I remember vividly when the financial crash happened in 2008, the look of shock on so many people working in the financial world, realizing that what they thought was a total certainty, that money and salaries would just simply increase and increase, suddenly we were within half an hour of the financial system of this country breaking down and money not coming out of ATMs. The God that they worshipped suddenly was seen in its true reality. And that was the thing that had been worshipped and is still worshipped. And an attitude of self-love leads to pride and arrogance and abusive relationships which lead to a breakdown in community, and aren't we seeing that? An attitude of self-love undermines the family, for the legitimate authority of parents is flouted. They're not honored, as the fifth commandment insists they should be. And an attitude of self-love leads to ingratitude and unforgiveness. Such people keep a record of wrongs, and they refuse any attempt at reconciliation. And it's not only family and friendships that are damaged, but self-love ruins their character, so they have no self-discipline. They speak evil of others. They hate what is good. Do we know about this today? Couldn't Paul have written this list just for our own culture too? Yesterday, Tim Keller, speaking at a conference, introduced me to a new phrase, a new thought, expressive individualism expressive individualism, coined in a book by Robert Bella and others entitled The Habits of the Heart. And the term describes modern Western culture which values the individual self who is encouraged to prioritize their desires and their dreams above everything else. Be yourself. Do what you want to do. Assert your desires over society. And he gave some examples of this attitude reflected in advertising. The Burger King advert, have it your way. Nike, just do it. And then he quoted the words of Elsa's song in Frozen. You'll know about Frozen. The fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And of course, this is the popular culture absorbed by five-year-olds and upwards. It doesn't take much imagination to perceive the dangers ahead and how, what a contrast it is to Christian discipleship. 
So we too need to wake up and smell the coffee. But if a refusal to accept God's truth will be seen in people's behavior, it will also affect their religion. Look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them. It may seem odd that the people Paul's just been describing were apparently religious. Yet, as John Stott says, in only the way that John Stott can, religion and holy living have been more often divorced than married. Religion and holy living have been more often divorced than married. And the Old Testament is full of examples of God's people doing religious observance while at the same time living in a most ungodly way. So God says through Isaiah, your new moon festivals, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. The religion of the Pharisees, like that of the people Paul described, only had a form of godliness. It denied its power. For genuine, real Christianity has a transforming power, power even to forgive your enemies. A 21-year-old man, Dylan Roof, entered a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and imagine this, having sat through an hour-long Bible study, shot nine people dead, including the church's pastor. And the BBC News showed the bail hearing for the young man. He was on a video link from jail, and in the courtroom, a number of relatives of the dead were allowed to speak to him. And the BBC reporter was visibly moved as one by one they told him that they forgave him and they asked God to have mercy on his soul. The effect it had on the BBC reporter shows what a testimony it is to the world when it encounters the transforming power of real Christianity which has the power to enable Christians with God's help to forgive their enemy. Real Christianity has a transforming power also to deal with guilt that may have haunted a person for years, power to heal and be healed, power to display the supernatural fruit of the Spirit when it would not naturally be there, fruits such as joy in the most difficult of circumstances, peace when the world seems to be caving in, love for those who actively oppose or even hate you. Not to look for that transformation, and incidentally, it's one of the things that still keeps me going in ministry as I see lives changed by God. You know, people have this view that we are sort of like historians. We're interested in culture and museums. One curate was asked what he did, and he said, I'm a, I'm a curate, and they thought he meant a curator of a museum. He said, no, no. I'm seeking to lead people to worship the living God who changes lives. Not to look for that transformation is effectively a denial of the gospel. For there's no area of our lives that God cannot transform by his spirit if we let him. No wonder that Paul tells Timothy, in no uncertain terms, have nothing to do with such people who deny 
the power of the gospel. So a refusal to accept God's truth means that these gospel deniers long to capture others to their way of thinking. That gives them comfort that they're on the right hand, on the right way. Look at verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they'll not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone." We are to understand verse 6, I believe, which makes for uncomfortable reading at first sight as referring to particular women, not women in general, in the same way that the words in verses 2 to 4 refer to particular people and not to every person in society. And contrary to a widely held view, Paul had a very high regard for women. They were valued members of his missionary teams, and his teaching on the rights of women within marriage as set out in 1 Corinthians 7, which I commend to you, it's a surprise to many, 1 Corinthians 7, are way ahead of his time. They are, in fact, of the 21st century. The women Paul refers to here were easily swayed, always following the latest teaching, but never able to acknowledge the truth in Christ. They had thus become easy prey to false teachers who sought them out and victimized them. Such people are graphically described by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians as being like children tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every word of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Now that is, of course, equally true of men as of women. If you don't have a firm grasp of the truth, you are absolutely vulnerable to every fad and fashion of contemporary culture. And I learned that very, very early on in my Christian life. A friend of mine got caught up with the Moonies. Now, you probably don't remember the Moonies. Uh, a follower of Mr. Moon, who uh, said that Jesus had failed, a uh, lovely man, but failed in his mission, and that he was the Messiah. Mr. Moon was the Messiah. And my friend somehow got caught up in this cult, and I knew one verse Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And I hung on to this verse. And I said, well, I don't understand. Many things I don't understand. This I understand. And that little amount of truth meant that I was able to resist what was a fad and a fashion, which all of you look blank at me now. But let me tell you, it was very strong then. And to illustrate the kind of false teachers that he's talking about, Paul mentions Janes and Jambres, and they don't even appear in Scripture. But according to Jewish tradition, they were among Pharaoh's court magicians. And as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so the false teachers were opposing the truth that Paul and Timothy were teaching. And note this, those who opposed the gospel, verse 8, had depraved minds. Once your thinking is warped, then it's impossible to grasp the truth. It would be easy to be fearful about all this, all this opposition. Paul dismisses it almost lightly. They will not get very far because, brackets, as in the case of Janis and Jambres, their folly will be clear to everyone. He just dismisses them like that. 
Again, John Stott, you can't improve it. Even if these men have some limited success, quote, there is something patently spurious about heresy and something self-evidently true about truth. There's something patently spurious about heresy, something self-evidently true about truth. Isn't that terrific? And actually, this is where knowing a bit of church history should encourage us. The church over the centuries has faced and fought numerous heresies, but God has always and will always preserve his truth in the church. That is Paul's analysis of what is going on. How is Timothy to respond? And I believe that Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, provides a helpful key. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Paul is saying, and this is my third heading, make a difference. Make a difference. Modern version of Romans 12 puts it like this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Another commentator says, Paul is saying this, don't be like a chameleon which takes its color from its surroundings. Instead, be different and let people see the transforming power of the gospel in your life. Uh, You know the old joke of the police, policeman, young policeman on a training uh, exercise, a written exercise. He was asked what he would do. He was walking down the street, and as he walks down, he sees some burglars, uh, some robbers robbing the bank. At that moment, a woman in front of him collapses. Uh, a building falls down over, uh, just over the road, and there's a crash right in front of him. What would you do in these circumstances? He said, I'd take off my uniform and melt in with the crowd. Make a difference. And did you note where this all starts? It starts in our minds. The false teachers who oppose the truth have depraved minds. Christians are called to have renewed minds. I think that's what we're doing here, isn't it? We're renewing our minds, getting our thinking right before we rush out into a world which absolutely doesn't denies God in many cases, turns its back on him. And the main way God renews our our minds is by his word, through the Bible. And Paul encourages Timothy against a background of militant error. It's a phrase in one of the books, I like that, militant error. To continue to abide in what he's learned and and become convinced of. Keep going. Live in that truth. Firstly, because he knows the character of his teachers and that their character reflected what, what he was taught. They were walking the talk. They were living it out. And in addition, secondly, the integrity of Paul and his grandmother and mother who taught him the Holy Scriptures from early days, they were absolutely convincing too. They were living it out. He'd watched them and seen them. I became a committed Christian. It started by living with uh, a minister and his wife in South Africa, and they never spoke to me about the gospel, oddly enough. But they lived it. And it made me ask questions. Why, why were they different? What was going on? 
And these scriptures were able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Goodness me, isn't that a powerful, powerful little phrase? The mere reading of scripture was not enough. There had to be a combination of reading plus faith centered in Jesus Christ. It's as we put our trust in Jesus that he speaks to us and our minds and thinking are renewed because of that relationship. And then Paul, verse 16, underlines, and I love this word, the usefulness, the profitableness of Scripture, which is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. You see, reading the Bible is useful. I can't emphasize that enough because we live in an age of priorities. You know, what am I going to do today? I've got 35 things to do. What is my priority? What's useful? What's not useful? What can I... Well, reading the Bible in the morning is useful. It's not a waste of time. In fact, it's essential if our thinking is to be right. It's useful for teaching and rebuking. Sometimes you hear that phrase, oh, doctrine, it's so boring, it's so, you know, do we need doctrine? Yes, of course we do. It's teaching. It's teaching which encourages and warns. If we're not reading the Bible, we're not alert. We're not encouraged. We just crash into the dangers of the day. I find personally it's extraordinary that if I, if first thing I read, read my Bible, then somehow the day is different. Whereas if I make that fatal error of turning my, my computer on and start thinking about emails, that's done. My top tip for this morning. It's also about practice. It's about correcting and training. Do you see how useful it is, how profitable? Not in the debit column, but in the credit column. So if reading the Bible for the Christian is profitable and useful, why do we neglect it? The Bible Society has done many surveys, and it revealed that regular church attenders don't read the Bible in just the same proportion as those who don't come to church. Have we fallen into the same trap? Are we irregular or are we disciplined? I want to say you're probably disciplined because you're here. That's terrific. Because the man of God is before all things the man of the Bible. That's what equips us in ministry and service. We are vulnerable to the world's agenda if we don't study God's word so we know God's agenda and have our minds renewed, get our thinking straight. We will make a difference if our minds are being constantly transformed by God's word. So what is your regular personal plan for Bible study? Are you sticking to it? Good moment just to review that. But there's also something else here which I don't want you to miss. We'll make a difference if we learn from the godly example of others, of other Christians. And I think this is very moving because this is about Paul giving the example from his own life as a testimony to God's faithfulness for Timothy's encouragement. The baton is being handed on. You see, his teaching ministry, verse 10, was linked to his way of life, his general behavior that Timothy would have observed at close quarters. It's rather intimidating for the vicar with his carriage in the front row, you know. Do our lives, do they have that integrity? Paul is able to say, just remember my life. And Paul's life was a life of 
faith, of patience, of love and endurance, and his fortitude when things go wrong, and many things in his life went wrong. But God was with him. And his life is nearly over, and Paul is simply drawing out lessons from experience for Timothy. He's not on an ego trip. He's simply saying, this is what I've learned about God and his faithfulness. And he reflects, in fact, on distant past experiences in Antioch, Lystra, and Iconium. And as he does this, and as he reminiscences about it, it reminds him of what uh, was said in the past in Acts 14. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's why it's so dangerous when we say to new Christians or people thinking about Christianity, you know, simply turn to Christ and all will be fine. It'll be, life will be a bowl of cherries. In many ways, it won't. Because, of course, we're swimming against the current. And those of you who are fishermen will know that if you go salmon fishing and the fish is going upstream, it's alive. If it's floating with the current, it's dead. What sort of fish are we? In fact, wrote Paul, with past experiences in mind, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I don't know what form that will take. I don't think it will be the physical persecution. So we mustn't over-dramatize what we're experiencing here. There are Christians today who will die because they acknowledge Jesus. Today. They'll be faced with that choice. We don't face that. But we face challenges in a culture which we were thought we were quite comfortable in. It's changed around us. And it's changed rather like um, cooking a frog. How do you cook a frog? You just cook it slowly. The climate has changed. The culture has changed. And we need to be alert to it. And there will be times when we're put on the spot, maybe at work. I remember a friend of mine many years ago, quite junior, he was in a meeting, and they said, oh, we're going to do this. And he said, but of course, that's dishonest, isn't it? And they all went, oh, like the emperor's new clothes, he'd named it for what it was. And it was. <laughs> and there may be a cost. Uh, was it uh, Sam Goldwyn? He said, I want people to be honest with me, um, even if they lose their jobs. <laughs> but we have to live with ourselves, don't we? we? And of course, we're living before God. We're accountable to him. Let alone ourselves. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Nevertheless, Timothy will have looked back about the past incidents that Paul has mentioned, and he's seen them as revealing the Lord's deliverance and Paul's endurance. There is no small print in this. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And it seems to me that as we reflect on just on this passage, the huge encouragement that Paul was to Timothy. Yes, challenging, challenging days. He was an older, faithful brother, and he was just stiffening him and encouraging him. And I expect, like me, you can think of one or two Christians who are huge influence and encouragement. And we, in turn, shouldn't underestimate how we can help each other. Can you with younger brothers and sisters in Christ, can we act as spiritual mentors? It'll be other, other brothers in Christ. 
uh, weekly meeting once a week with Uncovered. You know that new system, don't you, that uh, students are using. It's very straightforward. We've got copies, I think, somewhere. Uh, it's on Luke's Gospel. They've also brought out John's Gospel. You don't have to prepare it. You just open it up and just open it with them. It's having a powerful effect. You can say to people, <laughs> can I just, would it be good to, to see what, um, what Christianity is really about? Would you mind just reading a few, few verses of the Bible with me? And you can do it in a coffee shop. And it's having a powerful effect. St. Michael's this last year, one of the sadnesses has been a number of the faithful senior members have died. They've been here for many years. I, I, I think of some of them. 92-year-old lady who was such a prayer. She was such a huge encouragement to everybody in the church and to me. She was always in church. She was almost blind. She always caught a bus. I begged her to take a taxi. We paid for a taxi. No, no, she's going to get you. She's always here. What an encouragement she was. Uh, an inspiration to me and to younger members. We can be a huge encouragement to each other as we go forward. Um, I still am encouraged today by a man who was converted at the same time as, as I was as a student. He's still going on. That's a huge encouragement to me. So there we have it. 2 Timothy 3. Are we prepared to face terrible times simply because we're Christians as we reflect on our contemporary culture? Are we disciplined in regular Bible study? For Scripture is so useful in equipping us for every good work. And whose example encouraged us as young Christians? Who can we encourage in these days? Let's pray just as we sit. Maybe just in this quiet moment to reflect, perhaps it's just one thought that's come to you, a, a thing that God wants you to do. It may be to meet with someone else. It may be you're facing a situation where actually you've got to stick your head above the parapet. It may be to be more disciplined in studying the Bible. So, Heavenly Father, may we not be those who look into the mirror of your word and forget what we've seen, but may we live out and put into practice what you have shown us, that we may be doers of your word also. Amen. I think it's over to you. Uh, time to listen to each other, talk together, and pray together. Great to see you all this morning, gents. Just a quick reminder that we are indeed uh, back here next week um, as opposed to two weeks' time when the building's out of action. So look forward to seeing you again at Burning Man uh, same time next week. Uh, there's a donations box on your way out if you'd like to donate.